And let's go ahead and pray before we open the Bible this morning together. Our Father, we would hear from you today. Would you speak to us? Would you take hearts that are often so stone cold they are not receptive? And would you make them malleable spirits that are often willful? We pray, Lord, that you would make them yield our minds that are often wandering, that you would help them to be focused. Ears that are often closed, that you would open them. And we pray that as you speak to us by your word this morning, that you would do a mighty work within us. And we ask that for your glory and for the glory of the Son and for the glory of the Spirit. It's in that Son's name that we pray. Amen. Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 26 and 27. This morning, this is the holy and errant Word of God. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. J.C. Ryle once said, prayer is the most important subject in all religion. All other subjects are second to it. We're going to spend three weeks here at the beginning of January this year, this week, and the next two weeks, and we're going to preach on prayer and look at prayer together. This is part of a, a larger initiative, what we're calling our faith focus, and let me remind you a little bit of this as we talked about it at the end of last year and then the fall of last year, that we want to, as we approach each year, we're going to kind of divide it up into three different time segments, if you will, or three different periods as we approach the year. In the summer, as we did this past summer, we're going to lay before you all the different ways that you can serve at URC and some different ways that you can serve in our community because we all have gifts. If you are filled with the Spirit of God, you have been given gifts by the Spirit. And those gifts are necessary for this body. We need your service. We need your gifts at work. And you need, and we need one another's gifts in our lives at work. And so we're going to lay out before you in the summer kind of all the different opportunities and softly put it before you and give you opportunities to plug in in different ways and get prepared for the fall and serving one another and serving the community. 
As we enter the fall, we really want to be a hospitable place and we want to be receptive to students that are new to the university and coming back to the university and international scholars that are coming from all over the world and graduate students and new faculty members and new families that are moving to the area and we're really focused on reaching those people and so welcoming them into our midst and uh, trying to ingrain them into our lives and minister to them because we truly believe the Lord has placed us here as a university church and we dare to believe that by being a university church, we can truly reach the ends of the earth with the gospel by ministering as salt and light to the people that are coming to this university. And as we do that, we continue to minister to families in our midst and singles in our midst and older couples in our midst and young couples in our midst and children in our midst, and we're all doing this together. We feel like that gives us then January until Easter to really kind of focus on something. We're calling it our faith focus. Something that we want to get more ingrained into our body. Maybe it's something we're lacking in. Or maybe it's just something we want to mature in. We just want to grow in. So the... We want to hear from you through the course of the year what you think it should be next year. And then our staff kind of puts together some ideas and those ideas then go to the elders and the elders then pray and think through some of those ideas and then select one of them and say, okay, let, let's work this more into the DNA, more into the life of our community and into our church. And so this first year, what was decided was let's focus on prayer. Let's make our faith focus here in 2019 prayer. And so how will we focus on it? Well, these first three weeks of January, we'll, we'll preach on prayer. We'll go back to Matthew after these three weeks, but we want to introduce you to prayer and help work it into our thinking and how we approach it. And so we'll do that this these three weeks. I'll preach this week and next week, and then Pastor Kevin will preach uh, the third week on prayer. And then as we return back to Matthew, you may see a few more applications about prayer. We've also asked all of our staff members to put together plans for their different ministry areas. How to, how to just, then the things that are already existing, how to work prayer more into it. And those have all been approved by the elders as they met and looked through those different plans. You'll hear us emphasizing our prayer meetings on Tuesday morning and encouraging more to come out to it. We'll be emphasizing coming to our prayer meetings that we have once a, a month on Sunday evening, the first Sunday of the month. Tonight, we have a prayer meeting, which will be followed by soup and salad potluck. I mean, really, you come tonight and pray together. One of our elders is starting an initiative to to get prayer going during the services so that when the 9.15 service is going, there are some people praying for it in the back room. And then at 11, they will come to the service. And at 11, as we're having the service, there will be people that attended the 9.15 service that will be back here praying. There different opportunities, different Sunday school classes that will help to train and equip you to pray. You'll see different things being rolled out here over the next weeks and months. Why? Why is prayer going to be our first faith focus? Can we, 
do something that would feel a little more encouraging. Because as soon as we say prayer, we all start to feel guilt. Robert Murray McShane, the famous 19th century pastor, said that if you want to humble a Christian, just ask about his or her prayer life. Because we all struggle in prayer. And so maybe it would be less guilt-inducing and more welcome to start with something else. But we're starting here. And we're starting here because if URC accomplishes anything, if we grow and mature as individuals at all, or as a community at all, if we grow in spiritual maturity, if we grow in faith, if we grow in faithfulness, it will be upon the foundation of prayer. Prayer is essential to our Christian life, and it's essential to our Christian life together as a community. Did you just dream sometimes about what it would be like if the if the Lord did uh, an amazing work in our day and age? If there was a a revival and an awakening where we're not just dozens of men and women and children, and not just hundreds, but literally tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands in our community, in our state, in our country, came to saving faith. To dream about that. There is nothing I long to see more except the Lord Jesus Christ face to face than to see an awakening in the time that I live on earth. To be part of an awakening. God does one of those monumental works. Why does that happen sometimes in history and not happen in others? Why is it that some generations of the church, that, that their ministry tends to be fruitful and, 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 and abound, and other times generations in the church, they seem to be lackluster their ministry, and it seems to be failing and fleeting? What's the difference? I don't know every reason. But I'm convinced that one difference that is readily evident in Scripture and that's readily evident in Christian history is the use of the means of grace. That the church in the ages, when there is awakening, when there is mass revival, they've attended to the means that God has given to the church to do the work of the church, the Word and prayer. That they've been committed to the Word of God. And they've been prayerful about what they're engaging in and what they're doing and who they are. And it seems, at least in my humble opinion, that the prayerlessness of the American church is the single greatest obstacle to the fruitfulness of its ministry in this generation. And if the American church dwindles even more, if the faith that we confess, if it shrinks back in our day and age, the principal cause will not be governmental restrictions. 
It will not be atheistic professors nor hostile cultural elites and surely not a lack of relevance. The single greatest cause of the American evangelical church's crumbling will be the prayerlessness of its people. The means that they're within our reach. See, great things in our day. And the Lord's provided them. We just need to use them in faith. J.C. Ryle again said this. He said, backsliding generally first begins with neglect of private prayer. Bibles read without prayer, sermons heard without prayer, marriages contracted without prayer, journeys undertaken without prayer, residences chosen without prayer, friendships formed without prayer, the daily act of prayer itself unhurried over or gone through without heart. These are the kind of downward steps by which many a Christian descends to a condition of spiritual palsy or reaches the point where God allows him to have a tremendous fall. And as this could be said of individuals, so it could be said of us together, the church. Like a heartbeat monitor, a a person or a church's prayerfulness or lack thereof informs whether there is beating life within or whether it's just cold stillness. When there is prayerfulness, that power, that power that is unleashed is great. The apostle says, he says, the prayers of a righteous man availeth much. My favorite quotes from all of church history is when Mary, Queen of Scots, was opposing the Protestant faith in Scotland. And she said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than I fear 10,000 soldiers. There's incredible power in prayer. Lives are reborn, spirits are changed, people are moved, missionaries are mobilized, countries are awakened. The world is turned upside down, as was said about the effect of that praying church in Acts. They turn their world upside down. And I think, I think most of us in this room believe that. But we believe that about other people's prayers. Because we feel so weak in our own personal prayers. We struggle. Prayer is an odd thing. It's an odd thing because we go to prayer because we recognize that we're weak and we're in need. And yet when we're in prayer, we come to even a fuller realization of how weak and in need we are because our prayer is so weak. And it appears so feeble and so trivial and so plodding and trite and simple. I feel like many times they don't rise above the ceiling. 
And this is why I want to start our faith focus on prayer with this text, with this passage, and thinking about this passage. Praying by the Spirit. There's great comfort here. There's great encouragement here. In our prayer lives, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. How? Well, there are three ways in this passage. He helps us in our weakness by being with us, by praying for us, and by purifying our prayers. So the Spirit helps us in our weakness in our prayer lives by being with us, by praying for us, and by purifying our prayers. Paul says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The context of Romans 8 is that Paul is discussing the church's present suffering in the midst of this time. We live in a time of suffering. And in a culture of suffering or in an environment of suffering, there is extreme loneliness. There's maybe nothing that feels more lonely than the isolation that comes with suffering. And Paul has just addressed that this suffering is to be something that's to be expected by the church, that it's something that's just part of this day and age. He's also promised that this time of suffering will end, that Jesus will return, and the suffering will come to a close. But he doesn't just leave it there. That, that's not his only encouragement to the church here in Rome. He doesn't just say, look, you're going to suffer, and it's going to eventually end. So just keep on keeping on. That's not his only encouragement. And now he comforts us with the help that we have in the midst of this age of suffering. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And Surely we have many weaknesses, but what Paul especially has in mind here, what he is referring to is our weakness in praying. That's what he says. He says, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. In a kind of misery loves company way, I absolutely love this verse. Because I love that Paul, Paul the apostle says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Apostle Paul, the man who is on the Damascus Road and hears the voice of Christ. The Apostle Paul who wrote most of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul who said that he was carried up to the third heaven and can't even tell you and I what all he saw. The Apostle Paul, who was the, the great apostle to the Gentiles, the greatest theologian the church has ever known, knew Christ in his mind and his heart maybe better than anyone that has ever lived. And even he knew weakness in prayer. If you feel weak in prayer, you're in good company. But you know that struggle should be the content of the prayer that I pray. How should I pray for this or that? What do I say? Or you know what is the right thing to pray for, but just don't know how to pray about that particular thing. 
And here Paul provides comfort. He says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness by being with us. That is, I'm not alone in my prayers. There's that fascinating interaction in the Gospel of John where Jesus is with the disciples and He is telling the disciples that He must leave them. That He must ascend to the Father. And the disciples, we are told, John tells us that they had sorrow in their hearts. Their hearts were very sorrowful, he says. And then they ask, and with kind of desperation in their voice, they say, well, where are you going? Jesus responds to them, and He says, it's to your advantage that I go away. Now, how can that be the case? How can it be the case that it's to the advantage of the disciples that Jesus would depart from them? That He'd no longer be walking with them? That He'd no longer be face to face with them? How could it be to our advantage that Christ is not here with us bodily? This is what He says. If I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go... I will send Him to you. That is, if I don't go away, you you can't have the Spirit. And you need the Spirit. Why is this such a benefit? Because by the indwelling Spirit, the disciple of Christ possesses more intensely and powerfully the sovereign grace of God than they ever could have enjoyed before. They didn't lose Christ. They gained more of Christ. Christ said to His disciples before ascending to heaven, He said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. How? Well, Christ is with them, but He is even more intensely, even more powerfully, even more fully as He ascends to the Father because He is with them by His Spirit that now indwells them. The Spirit helps us in our weakness by being with us. We're not alone in prayer. He's shaping us. And He's shaping our prayers. The Spirit that indwells us is a spirit of prayer. Jude says in his letter, he says, pray in the Holy Spirit. Just prior in Romans 8 there in verse 15, if you look up there, Paul says this. He says, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That is, the the Spirit's presence moves us to pray. He comes into us and he, He forms prayers within us. We cry out, Abba, Father. In Galatians, Paul says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is what the Spirit does. The Spirit is a spirit of prayer. And what absolutely fascinates me about these two passages in Romans and Galatians, though they sound almost identical, there's a different word. There's a different subject in those two passages that sound almost identical. In Romans 8, Paul says the Spirit comes into us and we cry, Abba, Father. 
In Galatians, he says the Spirit comes and indwells us, and He cries out in our hearts, Abba, Father. He prays and He elicits prayer. The Spirit is a spirit of prayer that prays in us and He evokes prayer. The, the Spirit helps us in our weakness to pray. Not alone. Surely, I think one of the greatest obstacles to our praying is because we think that we have to convince God to hear us. We, if we're honest, we view Him as distant. We view Him as maybe a little severe or a lot severe. And prayer becomes this kind of mechanical thing whereby we, we know we just have to do this duty, hopefully to get what it is that we desire, hopefully to convince this distant and sometimes severe God to to grant what we desire or what we need. And it is one of the great lies of our adversary. We have to somehow get God on our side. How many prayers are stunted by such a legalistic mindset? As if our Heavenly Father wants to keep good things from us. He's our Heavenly Father, and He so knows our weakness in prayer that He sent His Spirit into our hearts so that we might have help in prayer. He's not distant. He's, he's drawn more near than you and I can possibly imagine. Second, the Spirit helps us in our weakness not only by being with us, but as we've mentioned already, by praying for us. The Spirit actually prays for us. Paul says the Spirit Himself, it is emphatic, the Spirit Himself, the very Spirit of God intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. He groans as we groan. You know a groan when you hear it. It communicates, though there are no words that are being said, and it often communicates what is inexpressible. This is what some of the English translations translate this little phrase as, is inexpressible. The groaning here can't be heard. It's too deep for words. It's not words, but neither is this groaning nonsense Either Paul is referring to a kind of metaphorical groaning that the Spirit does for us. If we look back up into verse 22, we see that the creation itself groans. It doesn't offer an audible groan. You don't hear trees groaning. You don't hear bushes groaning out loud, but they're groaning, the Apostle Paul says, in a metaphorical way. That is, they are longing with deep desire for that day when the sons of God will be revealed and they'll be set free from the futility of this world that sin is brought into. He says, so they groan. Creation groans. 
It's a longing. It's a desire so deep that it's, it's inexpressible. We've all been in conversations where we just want the other person to understand what we're trying to communicate, but no words seem able to communicate it. Let's be honest, most of those conversations are when a wife is trying to explain something to her husband. I confess on behalf of all mankind since the beginning of the world, you are right. We don't know what you're talking about. Don't understand. And a wife or a girlfriend will go through 50 different ways of expressing things in different words to try and convince her husband or her boyfriend what it is that she is trying to say and what she is feeling. And she thinks probably at the 20th time she could have gotten a trained chimp to understand her at this point. But it, it doesn't register. It doesn't make sense. And she says, I, I just wish you could understand me. And then the conversation keeps going. And she, she maybe thinks or she says, I just wish you could be in my mind or you could know my heart just for this moment, just to understand what I'm trying to communicate to you. And we might even go further and we'd say, I, I just want you to be able to feel what it is I'm feeling. And the words can express it. It's just, it's inexpressible. There's no such breakdown in our communication with God. The Holy Spirit is with us and the Holy Spirit is praying for us. He, he takes those groans and He prays them. Notice these groanings take place in our hearts. They are the groanings of the Spirit, but they take place in our hearts. Paul is emphasizing that as he notes that God searches our hearts in verse 27. It is only God who searches the hearts. The psalmist says that in 139 when he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart, and he does. It's God alone that knows the heart, and by the Spirit that is within us, he, he hears what is desired, and He answers according to what is needed. Because the Spirit is praying for us. That means that my prayers, though my prayers may be an absolute mess, though they may make no sense, Though they may not be articulating fully what it is that I'm wrestling with, and they don't feel like they're going anywhere beyond the ceiling that's above me, that they're making their way to heaven and they are completely intelligible to God. So many are so slow to pray because, because they think their prayers are too simple and they're too weak. You feel like a child, and so you quit out of embarrassment, and that is a misunderstanding of prayer. It is a lie of our adversary, because the power of prayer is not in what you say. The power of prayer is not in how you say something, but it's in Him. And He takes our prayers and He prays them for us. 
And so they're made effectual. And they are made powerful by the Spirit. I truly think that if you and I knew the power and the effect of our prayers, we would never get off of our knees. The Spirit helps us in our weakness by being with us and by praying for us. And finally, by purifying our prayers. Verse 27. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Not only aren't my groanings translated into the heavens, they're sanctified and they're purified according to the will of God, and they are made right intercessions. As one dear saint said, the Spirit fixes our prayers on the way up. If you and I were to walk into an artist's artist studio, and in that artist's artist studio, we saw their palette and all of these globs of paint all over the place on it, and then we saw their canvas, and then we saw paintbrushes that are scattered all over the room. We think it's a mess, all of these individual parts. And yet, as the artist touches that and brings it together, they create something beautiful out of all of those parts. So the Spirit does with our prayers. The Spirit is the artist of prayer, and He makes our weak, feeble, wandering words something beautiful before God. Because the Spirit is always praying according to the will of God. For He's God. That means that his prayers are always answered. His prayers are always answered. Now, you and I can't say that. That our specific prayers, that every prayer that I pray, every way that I've prayed it, that every prayer of mine is answered specifically as I've prayed it. Now, we know that some prayers that we pray, the answer is yes from God. Some prayers that we pray, the answer is no from God. And some Prayers that we pray, the answer from God is not yet. We don't always know what is His will when we pray. The Apostle Paul prayed three times that the thorn in his flesh would be removed from him, but it wasn't the will of God. Moses prayed that he would enter into the promised land, but it wasn't the will of God. David prayed all night that his infant son would not die, but it was not the will of God. Sometimes it's yes, sometimes it's no, sometimes it's not yet. We don't always know how we should pray, whether it's actually according to the will of God. I'm praying for my children, what is best for them. I don't always know. When, when another child is being mean to my child, what do I pray? I don't want them to be unduly burdened. I don't want them to be crushed under the harshness of another child. I don't want them to be devastated. But I also know that suffering produces character. I also know that trial produces strength. I also know that going through suffering leads them to greater dependence upon God. And this is a very small thing, and it could be preparing them for a greater trial down the road. So what do I pray? 
Do I pray that the child would stop being mean? Or do I just pray that my child would persevere in the midst of it? Or do I pray that that other child would be even meaner? Don't always know the will of God. We don't always know what the will of God is, but the Spirit who indwells us does. And our responsibility is simply to pray according to what we know and to pray in faith. And He takes our prayers and He purifies them according to the will of God. And they're made pleasing before His throne. John Murray wonderfully said this. He said, the children of God have two divine intercessors. Christ is their intercessor in the court of heaven. The Holy Spirit is their intercessor in the theater of their own hearts. The Spirit purifies our prayer. So you stop allowing your adversary to prevent you, prevent you from praying by shoving your ignorance before your mind as some kind of stumbling block or roadblock to getting upon your knees. It's not our weakness. It's not our inability that defines the extent of God's grace in our lives, but rather the faithful, knowledgeable, loving all wise intercessions of the Spirit on our behalf. And God always answers the prayers of the Spirit because the Spirit is God. But there are no prayers to purify if you and I aren't praying. But if we pray, if we pray, Spirit takes those feeble, those frail, those wandering words that we've somehow strung together that only make sense in our little minds and our little hearts. And He does mighty things with them. Mighty things. It's no mistake that verse 28, that most... Famous of verses follows right after this. It has a conjunction, and, that ties them together. Tying it together with these prayers. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Prayer becomes a burden. And we think... It is all reliant upon us as we try to manipulate a sovereign God. Prayer becomes much easier when we realize it is a privilege of participating in the work of the kingdom and speaking to our Heavenly Father. He knows. He knows that we are weak in prayer and so He has given us His Spirit and the Spirit helps us in our weakness by being with us, by praying for us, and by purifying our prayers. We need but pray in faith. I wonder if you would join me in seeking to grow in prayer this year. To mature in prayer. Next week, I want to offer some 
very practical ways to think about praying and growing in prayer. I want to start here this week. The very most important practical way to begin growing in prayer. It's to cry out to God and ask that the Spirit would help you to grow in prayer. He's the Spirit of prayer. It's clear from this passage that a Christian left to his or herself will not know how to pray. You won't. The Spirit is here to help us. How many people have been convicted over the course of the Christian of their Christian life and in Christian history have been convicted that, you know what, I need to be more of a person of prayer. And so especially around this time of year, at least in our culture, they resolve, I'm going to pray more. And so they begin and they do for a couple of days and then maybe for a week or two weeks, maybe even for a few weeks, but then it just stops. Why? They seek to do it in their own effort if it's dependent upon them without their eyes fixed upon Christ and asking for the blessing of the Spirit. Our Heavenly Father has given prayer to us as a gift and He and the Son have sent the Spirit into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, the Spirit is with us. Are you weak in prayer? Then you are in good company. Then you cry out and you ask for help from the Spirit that indwells you. It's a good prayer. Father, help me by your Spirit to grow in maturity in prayer. Make me more a person of prayer. Help me to enjoy praying more. Help me to have more effective prayers. Help me to long to be in my prayer closet. Help me just even to know how to put some words together to pray. Good prayers. Just cry out, Abba, Father. This passage screams to us, you will not be alone. Or better, it whispers to us like a, like a mother with her child that has just cried out. And she grabs a hold of and whispers, you're not alone. I'm with you. I'm working. I'm providing, I'm protecting. We but need cry out, Abba, Father, and see what He does. Look forward to seeing what He does. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful that though we are separated by space, that we are not separate from you. That even now we are ushered into your very throne room and are able to speak into your ear by the Spirit that indwells us and because of the intercession and the faithfulness of our Savior that is at your right hand forevermore. Oh, Father, forgive us for our neglect of prayer. Forgive us for thinking that you are harsh, 
you are distant, that prayer is some kind of mechanical thing to shape and mold you, you have given it to us as a gift. To commune with you, to talk with you, to make our requests made known to you, to receive comfort from you, to be shaped according to your truth. To just be with you. Would you make us more a people of prayer? Surely for the good of our own souls that we might grow in maturity. But even more than that, that we might be of greater use for the kingdom. That we might impact the lives around us. That we might see a mighty work in our day. So that you might receive glory. That is our prayer. We pray it in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen.